On today's episode, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Bill Marler. I've been following his work for quite some time, really since we started working on Eat Cleaner, because he is the food safety attorney in the country. He's become the most prominent foodborne illness lawyer in America and has represented thousands of individuals in claims against food companies whose contaminated products have caused life-altering injury and even death. Most notably, he started his career by helping to litigate his clients that were victims of the jack-in-the-box E. coli 0157H7 outbreak. And that work was chronicled in the 2011 book, Poisoned, the true story of the deadly E. coli outbreak that changed the way Americans eat by best-selling author Jeff Benedict. For the last 25 years, Bill has represented victims of nearly every large outbreak in the U.S. Everybody from Dole to Chipotle, McDonald's, KFC, Jack in the Box, of course, Taco Bell, Wendy's, you name it. And through his work, he has secured over $600 million for victims of E. coli, salmonella, and other foodborne illnesses. But what you're about to hear from Bill is there is no price that you can put on being a victim of foodborne illness. And there are a lot of ways that you can protect your plate. We're gonna dive into that and hear from Bill directly on what he thinks needs to change in the food industry in order to help people have confidence again in eating a salad. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Maria, otherwise known as the Fit Foodie. I'm a chef, holistic nutritionist, author, inventor, and mom. And I wanna welcome you to my podcast. It's called Recipes for Your Best Life. And with every episode, I'm peeling back the onion on fitness, nutrition, health, wellness, and family. The truth is you're the chef of your life. And for every important pillar, there's a great recipe worth sharing. So every week we'll explore them together. Think of it as food for thought that you can really sink your teeth into. So join me and let's squeeze the joy out of this life because you only get one. Can I get a fork, yeah? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You know, I've been a, a follower of yours for about 12 years now since I really started diving into the world of food safety with, uh, with the research that we were doing for our products. But you've been entrenched in this world for quite some time. What got you into food safety specifically? Well, you know, I, I was just, a, in a sense, just a, another young lawyer about four or five years out of law school when the jack-in-the-box E. coli outbreak erupted. And the, in many ways, the epicenter of it was, you know, the Pacific Northwest. Most of the people that got sick, most of the people that died were here locally uh, in the sort of Puget Sound region. And that's where you're based, right? That's in Seattle area. And um, they, uh, you know, ultimately there were over 600 people sick, four kids died, and about 75, mostly children, suffered acute kidney failure. So, um, and I wound up representing, you know, most of the severely injured children in that outbreak. Um, and that litigation went on for uh, about a year and a half, almost two years. Um, and then, you know, frankly, as that outbreak was winding down, 
Um, other foodborne illness cases were referred to me from lawyers and people from around the country. And in 1998, I started Marler Clark um, uh, with a handful of lawyers and staff. And we've been focused on foodborne illness cases exclusively representing victims for the last 21 years. Had there, prior to that um, incident, and for everybody listening, the Jack in the Box incident that we're talking about was related to E. coli and hamburgers. Was there anything that looked like that prior to this happening? I mean, I feel like that was sort of like the big bomb that dropped, that woke everybody up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, the answer to the question is that there weren't, there certainly were foodborne illnesses before Jack in the Box. Um, there wasn't foodborne illness litigation. That was really something that, uh, you know, we developed, but it had a lot to do with it. it was all, a lot of things came together at the same time. It was, you know, not only, you know, the media, internet, you know, ability to communicate a much faster in many respects, um, but also the technology of genetic fingerprinting to make sure that you know you knew what was causing it and being able to link things up. All of that sort of happened in the early to mid '90s, and then you know just got has gotten more and more sophisticated, you know, in the last two decades. Well, and I think you know too. It's it's one thing to get sick from foodborne illness, but it's another thing when literally dozens of people are getting. Really, really sick all at once. And so when that happened, you were kind of, I'm sure, writing the script, so to speak, from a legal perspective on what would happen. Um, what was your experience going through that? I, I bet that that was a really tough one. There were a lot of children that were affected by that outbreak. Yeah, I, I, I just uh, wrote a um, foreword to a book written by... Um, uh, one of the fathers of one of the children that died. I worked on that this weekend and, and shared it with him. And, you know, it was, it, it was a pretty devastating time frame. I mean, it's hard to describe just how intense the Jack in the Box case was, especially in Seattle. I mean, we had, you know, one of the clients I represented uh, was in a coma for 145 days. And they basically, every day, they, you know, Brianne Kiner in the coma, day 67, 68. Wow. And, you know, um, <clears throat> they were flying dialysis machines in from Minneapolis because there were too many people on dialysis. It was really, you know, in many respects, like a war zone. Wow. And it, it, it was pretty devastating. Um, you know, and I've gotten to know a lot of the people over the years, some who I represented, some who I didn't represent, who lost children. And, um, you know, it's, it certainly was a very emotional time for everyone. And I think, you know, something that I, I want to ask you a little bit more about is, you know, we, we as consumers hear about these outbreaks, and certainly it's become almost like part of our daily vocabulary. I feel and we'll talk a little bit more about the current outbreaks, but the word outbreak, I feel like people are somewhat numb to it until it hits them. Yeah. And, but when it hits, it's absolutely devastating. I mean, 
you know, you, you shared that you, you wrote a forward to this book. I mean, what is it like to be in the middle of literally this completely life-changing experience for a family as you're trying to um, also just defend them and, you know, help compensate them, but there's nothing, there's no amount of money that you can put on a life. No, I, I'm just, uh, I just finished up a case recently of um, a uh, now 13 year old boy. He was 11 when he was sick. Um, he ate soy nut butter um, that was contaminated with E. coli. Uh, he had a, a peanut allergy. Uh, parents were, you know, trying to do the right thing for him. Uh, it was contaminated. Uh, he and 32 other people in the United States got sick, but he, for whatever reason, and you know, sometimes we just don't know these things. He was hospitalized in the ICU for four months. Um, you know, nearly $2 million in medical bills. He's lost his large intestines. Uh, he is, uh, going to undergo a kidney transplant. Hopefully his kidney will last long enough to to get through the school year. Um, and, but his mother's going to be the the donor. Um, and you know, he's, has all kinds of other issues, uh, health related issues. Uh, you know, he's not growing normally because of the damage to his body. Um, you know, it, this is more than just, you know, a, a tummy ache. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, it, it, fortunately, um, uh, these kinds of devastating illnesses are not super common, but they're common enough for me. Um, and we've seen in this recent, uh, recent outbreaks, a variety of outbreaks of, uh, of romaine taint, uh, tainted with E. coli, some incredibly severely injured people, um, not only deaths, but people who are left with lifetime complications. And when you, so let's go back to Jack in the Box. After that outbreak, there were processes that were put into place, you know, industry-wide to help prevent something like that happening. And in that case, you know, when you have ground beef that's cooked to a certain temperature, there is a, you know, there's kill. a kill there. There's a kill that, you yep. know, it's never a hundred percent, but certainly it's, it's a lot less risky. What is causing all of these different types of outbreaks now that we're seeing? You talked about the soy nut butter, you, you know, we're seeing lettuce over and over again. Like, why can't we seem to get this under control? So, um, you know, these foodborne pathogens, whether it's salmonella, there's 2,000 varieties of salmonella, whether it's listeria, shigella, campylobacter, E. coli, um, you know, their, their, their jobs uh, are to sicken their host to allow for the spread of the bacteria uh, you know, through vomiting or diarrhea. That's, that's sort of their job. And they combat us as we combat them. And they evolve, you know, at a rate way faster than, you know, we can ever imagine. Um, you know, for just focusing on, you know, just look at two bacterium that are, I think, in many respects, although they don't cause the most illnesses in the U.S. population or around the world, 
they usually call, cause the most devastating. And one E. coli 0157, which is the pathogen that we deal with today in Romaine, um, that bug has been around for a while, but it, it was amplified um, by concentrated feedlots. Um, when you have cows, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cows, you know, sharing these bacteria with each other and, and getting into the environment. And um, there's some good, you know, literature on um, the fact that, you know, uh, grain was fed these animals, which isn't their normal thing that they're supposed to eat. It creates acidic uh, in their acid in their stomach. And these particular kinds of pathogens thrive well in an acidic environment. So you, you, by the environment that you created, this mass-produced food environment, you created these bugs to survive and now have populated into the environment. And you know, now we see it all the time. Uh, Listeria, uh, Listeria minus mycogenes, that uh, is a deadly bacterium. It, uh, you know, it, it usually hospitalizes 99% of the people and kills about a third. Um, that's a bug that has grown up uh, and evolved alongside of human refrigeration. The fact that we are refrigerating foods to knock down spoilage and bacterial growth for other pathogens. Listeria has found a niche where it grows really well at refrigerator temperatures. And so those two bugs have figured out a way to adapt to things that we have done as human beings. And now we're having to deal with the consequences of that. So it's not going to be an easy fix to fix those two things because now they're frankly endemic in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. It's a problem. And, and so, you know, with our, our state of the food industry and how food is being created and it's being created for the masses, do you think that a lot of what's been happening lately is negligence? Or do you think that the checks and balances just, I mean, what if you could pinpoint maybe what a problem is, and I know that's a really big net to, to cast, but is there a way, let's, let's just focus for now on produce, because mm -hmm. produce has been the headline that keeps popping up and it's let, I mean, romaine lettuce, there's no other commodity item that has taken that kind of hit, you know, six or seven times in the last couple of years. What, what do we do to stop the madness? I mean, there's no kill step with lettuce, right? You're not going to cook it. Right. So what, what are the other options? Do well, we just not eat lettuce anymore? <laughs> so, so um, maybe I'll, tell you what I think the problem is and how come we're keep seeing it again and again and again, and then talk about, you know, what are all, all, all the alternatives. Um, the, the reality is that if you focus on where romaine lettuce is grown, it's grown in the Central Valley in California, it's grown in the Salinas Valley area, it's grown in Yuma, depending upon the time of the year and based on the temperatures. 
it, it, and they, they just kind of circle through those three areas. Um, and if you've ever visited Fresno, if you've ever visited Salinas, if you've ever visited Yuma, one of the things that you notice fairly quickly is, is that this, you know, ready to, in a sense, ready to eat product is grown essentially alongside cattle. And cattle are the reservoir for E. coli 0157. It is without question the fact that, that that's grown nearby in proximity with water sources that are untreated or minimally treated that we keep having the same problem over and over and over again. Um, I remember one time having a, a case involving pre-made salads. Uh, so super convenient, you go into your grocery sure. store, boom, you know, it's all ready for you. Um, it was an outbreak, 30, 40 people around the country. I got a court order to go on to the farm because we were able to pinpoint what farm it was, uh, the growing operation. And I remember standing there with the lawyer, the field was fallow. It had been, you know, long, uh, you know, told un uh, uh, under. And I was standing on the, on a road, dirt road, uh, you know, not more than a car, car and a half wide. And where the romaine had grown was on my left and where on my right was a dairy farm. And you're like going, Wow. Uh, uh, well, we've had this grow operation here forever and we've never had a problem before. And, and so uh, is that negligence or just straight up, you know, stupidity? It's hard to sort of parse that out. Um, you know, we, the industry um, and the government, FDA, has done a lot since the spinach outbreak in 20, 2006 that sickened 205 people, killed five. And I was involved deeply in that. They've done a lot, but what they've done is they've done the easy stuff. Um, they've done the, well, let's put up a barrier, you know, let's, you know, do this, let's do that. Let's do more testing. The stuff that they haven't done and the stuff that's hard is, what are you going to do? Are you going to kick out the CAFO from Yuma? Mm. Or are you going to kick out the romaine lettuce people? We're now down to those very intractable fights over who came there first, who's got more political and financial power. These are the hard decisions um, that people need to make. Or do they make the decision that it's just part of the process and we're going to have 500 people with E. coli, seven or eight people dead, you know, uh, 200 people hospitalized and 50 with, you know, long-term complications uh, due to kidney failure. That's just the cost of us being able to consume romaine lettuce. I mean, those are the sort of decisions that, need to be made right now they're being made by default that we're not dealing with those difficult issues of land use so we're just allowing these outbreaks to clip along and you know from one thing to another thing to another thing but people are still ordering romaine lettuce 
So, and it's, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was going to be my question, you know, okay, so from a, a high level, it's very hard to say, okay, politically, one type of company is going to stay and one isn't, but there are other things that we can do to mitigate risk, right? Whether it's the, the flume water that's being used to wash the produce, to refrigeration, to, you know, it, just the consumers handling at home. But people, it's almost as though they don't really give a fork, you know, it's like they kind of just keep eating. And I scratch my head sometimes and I wonder, why is this one thing not really getting through to people? Do you think people are just, their their laissez-faire attitude is just sort of like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. So I guess it's just Russian roulette. Um, Well, I think... You know, it's it's sort of like um, it's sort of like when we go to war. Um, the way our military is now, where you know, what is it? Less than one percent of families are impacted by wars now, primarily because people join and they're. You know, it's very insular. Um, it's very different than when you have, um, you know, a war going on that everybody has to play ball, you know, that, that you know, there's a draft that people can't get out of. Um, you have a different attitude towards it. I think in some respects, um, what we're seeing is that um, most people aren't impacted to the to a degree like, you know, the recent outbreak. It's 30 people spread across, you know, 20 states. Um, You know, the the only people who really know about it are, you know, the families that it happens to, me, some people at the FDA, CDC, and people like you who pay attention to food safety issues. But you know, it's turned into a meme. You know, eating chocolate is now safer than eating romaine lettuce. I've been training for this my whole life, you know. But here's the thing that I, I still scratch my head about because in, in my line of business and what I do, I mean, obviously, I'm really, really aware of produce safety. There were so many, it seems to me, that there were so many um, safeguards put into place after the E. coli beef issue but not so much with produce. Is it because it is so different and, and there is a true kill step for one versus not the other? Like, why do you think they did that with beef but not now with produce? Well, I, I think the issue is that uh, um, E. coli in beef, you know, and yes, there were controls and you know, that used to be 90% of my law firm's business was E. coli cases linked to hamburger, and now it's zero or near zero. Um, but, you know, the, the control, it's a very controlled environment, you know, and, um, and they're, 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 there's a lot more interventions that are, you know, and the, not to say that there aren't more interventions that consumers can do to clean products and stuff like that. I totally agree with that but the the there's a lot more the industry and the beef industry could do to control their environment to to 
So the product that went out the door was less likely to be contaminated than it was 10 years earlier. And the benefit of having, you know, a cook temp uh, for 155 for 15 seconds to kill bacteria. You know, now when I'm seeing uh, E. coli cases linked to hamburger, it's a, a lot of situations where restaurants who have stopped seeing these E. coli cases linked to hamburgers are now offering to, you know, cook hamburgers to medium. And you're just like, oh my God. Don't do it. What are yeah. you thinking? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, I think that, yes, you know, the FDA and the leafy green industry have done an, an awful lot post-2006 to sort of fix this problem. I still think they are continuing to, you know, fix, try to do what they can to fix the problem. But some, I think we're down to the hard decisions. And... Um, and things like, you know, I'm, I'm old enough, you're not, I'm old enough to remember when, when you would go to a grocery store and not be able to get things certain times of the year. Yeah. Now, we can get anything we want any time of the year. And, you know, look at this, you know, these recent uh, uh, E. coli outbreaks linked to romaine lettuce. Um, you know, I think it's almost, it's now up to, you know, over 200 people sick. Um, almost all of them, I shouldn't say almost all of them, um, a, a full quarter of them are from Wisconsin. Hmm. The farther, and that, that was also true in 20, 2005 or 2006, um, you know, a quarter or more, more than a quarter of the people who got sick in that outbreak were all from Wisconsin. And, you know, seriously, uh, Wisconsinites are not the ones eating a lot of romaine lettuce and leafy greens. It just happens to be by the time the product gets all the way from California to Wisconsin, it's had a couple, three or four days for that bacteria to, you know, get an infectious dose higher. So there are going to be, I think you've got to ask yourself some real big questions like, should a CAFO be you know, within a stone's throw where you're growing romaine. Um, should you be mass producing romaine lettuce, then washing it, chopping it, putting it in a bag and shipping it to Wisconsin? You know, is that convenience so, is it worth the risk? And I think those are, those are the, the, we now are down to the tough decisions. And I think until we, we need to grapple with that or we're just going to continue to have this problem again and again and again. Yeah, so I, I interviewed uh, Will Daniels. He was at Earthbound Farms, as you I know. know. I, Will, and I, uh, I, <laughs> Will and I didn't start out as friends, but we're now con I consider him a friend. Um, I, I think he sort of considers me a friend. <laughs> Well, I mean, he, he, like you and I, very passionate about this subject, and he shared, you know, very openly a lot of information with me and talked to me about the Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement. Mm -hmm. And the Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement was something that was created, again, after that outbreak, the 2006 outbreak. But what startles me, and for everybody listening, it's, it's an agreement that if you're growing 
Leafy Greens, um, that it's a voluntary program where you would test a certain amount of product and, and ensure before it comes out to the market that it has passed. Why is this voluntary? <laughs> why, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around why something like this, if there are problems over and over again, it wouldn't be mandatory. Um, farmers... In farmers in the U.S. are disproportionately powerful people. Um, you know, each farm state has two senators, um, and so they are disproportionately powerful. Um, you know, there's, you know, we're fighting with China uh, over trade, and it's costing our farmers, should be costing our farmers hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, but we're subsidizing them so they don't complain because they're so powerful. So the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, people in positions of power, whether it's uh, politicians, business leaders, um, people in the media, um, have come to the conclusion, I think, that the, these deaths and these illnesses are, not necessarily acceptable, but they're tolerable. And, um, you know, they leave it to guys like me to kind of clean up the mess. And um, I think that's an immoral position to take. But um, the balance is, if you want to solve this problem, there are ways to try to solve this problem. But it it's not going to be easy and it does require i think it does require consumer and governmental action to protect consumers and to protect business from themselves do you are there um are there certain things that you think that the consumer should have access to that they're not getting access to right now for example when you walk into a grocery store I'm of the belief that you should know and be notified at your store of current outbreaks. If there's an outbreak about romaine lettuce on romaine lettuce, then I think it's, it's the obligation of the grocery stores where people are shopping to let you know. Right. Um, you know, a lot, the technology exists and, you know, uh, Frank Giannis from the FDA, formerly at, uh, to Walmart is a big proponent of blockchain. And, you know, the, the, the technology exists that, you know, you can fairly quickly, um, you know, let consumers know and let the chain of distribution know if there's a problem. Um, most big stores that are to the point where if you scanned something in that, that has actually been recalled, it'll stop the, your ability to scan it and won't let you buy it. So, there's, there are things that happen. Um, um, most grocery stores, at least on their websites, do put up information about recall products pretty quickly. Um, you know, but, so, but it's on their website. I mean, when you're shopping, you know, you know what I mean? You're in there. Right. Um, but, but big stores, you know, big stores, whether it's a Walmart, Kroger, Aldi's, et cetera, et cetera, as soon as they know, they have a problem, they lock stuff down. It's pretty unusual nowadays, it happens, it does happen. It, it's pretty unusual though for 
um, the industry not to be on top of things that are actually being recalled. It, it's a lot of work, but the systems exist where they can actually do that pretty quickly. Um, you know, they, there's always, you know, they can always be improvement. Um, you know, even an a entity like an Amazon uh, was selling the soy nut butter that was can that had been recalled had been selling it through a third party people had been were selling it six months after the <laughs> recall had happened. Wow. Anyway, so I mean, th those things do happen. The system doesn't operate perfectly. Um, you know, more importantly, you know, I think retailers, um, especially the big ones, you know, the Walmarts, the Costco's, Kroger's they're the ones that really should be putting the pressure on the industry and government to protect their customers, their purchasers of these products. To me, that's where the big failing is, um, is, is the, those, the guys, the guys and gals that are, you know, making the buck off the, off those, these big retail sales, they're the ones that should be putting the pressure on the industry and government to fix this problem. Yeah. Well, and here's my, my thought too, is once you get to the point of an outbreak, it means enough people have gotten sick that it's on the radar of the FDA and the CDC. Right. So what do we do? What can a consumer do to protect themselves? Because I feel like once the outbreak happens, it's too late. What yeah. do you do every day? What would you say the top three things as, as a consumer what can we do to prevent getting sick, to mitigate risk for ourselves and our family in the first place? Well, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are certain things that, you know, that I avoid. There are certain things that, you know, I think people who... Wait, yeah, what, what are the things you won't eat? <laughs> what won't Bill eat? <laughs> I'll, circle, I'll circle back to that. I have okay. a story about that. But, you know, I mean, there's... You have to think about it this way too, is, is that um, there are a, a large chunk of our population are immune compromised. You know, they either are elderly, have undergone, you know, some kind of therapy for cancers, their children, their pregnant women. My so dad, my dad's one of them. Yeah. Cancer so, survivor, doesn't have a bladder. Yep. So, you know, you have, you have these vulnerable populations and I think, that's sort of a separate category of people that, you know, really have to pay attention to not eating like, you know, rare, you know, meats, uh, not eating, you know, raw shellfish, not eating sprouts, not eating unpasteurized juices or milks, um, you know, paying attention to, especially women, uh, pregnant women, uh, cheeses and deli meats that might be in the refrigerator for a little longer than you expect because of listeria growth. I mean, there are things that you can do to protect yourself. I mean, keeping hot things hot and cold things cold and, you know, cleaning, you know, your fruits and vegetables well, just, you know, and, um, and then, you know, there's this great thing called cooking. <laughs> and, um, you know, to, to answer your question about what I avoid, I travel all over the world. Um, knock on wood, I have never had a foodborne illness. And, um, and I've gone to lots of different places. Um, but, I'm very, <laughs> but I'm very careful. Yeah. I'm very careful. Um, uh, you know, I don't, 
I don't, I will not eat a salad out at a restaurant. I'll order- At all, like no restaurants. I'll order cooked vegetables. I can, I'll get my salad at home where I can control my own environment. Mm -hmm. I don't buy processed leafy greens. I'll buy a head of romaine lettuce and wash it myself. Um, doesn't mean that it can't be contaminated, but to give you an example, in the case of the Will Daniels case where he was involved, you know, the Earthbound Farm, we actually were able to figure out that there was about a 20 acre uh, baby spinach plot that was likely the place where that was contaminated. And it was likely contaminated by wild pigs breaking down a fence and doing their business in certain portions of this field. Not all of the spinach was contaminated. There's small portions of it. But when you harvested it all at the same time, it all went to the processing facility and it overwhelmed the chlorine and, and the cold water wash. So all of this, more of this got contaminated. That's why you had a big outbreak. Had that, let it, had that spinach grown and you put it in bunches, would there have been some people sick? Maybe. But if you were buying it in bunches, some will be contaminated, but not all of it. So if you have an outbreak, you might have one person, two people, or none. And so part of the problem, in my view, is that um, it's great convenience and the ability to, you know, eat these things, you know, quickly and make it easy for you is great, but it doesn't come without, you know, the, the problems. You know, cut fruits and vegetables. You know, I mean, I know that that's really very convenient because I have a deli in, in, the, in my the building that I own that the, uh, the, uh, it's great. And they have fresh fruits and vegetables that they cut up and I go and get an apple and wash it myself. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you know, I've no, I know too much. And so, you know, and this is, you know, a big reason why we created our products was so that it would give people an opportunity to clean their produce in a way that's over 99.9% .9 more effective than water alone, because we don't clean anything with water alone and call it clean. Do you think there's, is there, do you think there's a reason why we're not being advised to clean produce in a way that's different other than just water alone? Because even when you buy processed produce that's been you know, cut and bagged, they're using a certain amount of chlorine that's legal, although it's, that's not a kill step really. Um, or they're using peroxyacetic acid, which again is not that effective. But you know, when you're at home and you buy a whole head of lettuce, yes, it's important to wash, but is water really doing the job? Right. No, I mean, I think there are, you know, I mean, I, I don't have a good explanation of why, um, other than the fact that the government doesn't necessarily go out of its way to put their finger on the scale for one person or another or one product or another. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, your product, other similar kinds of products that do that kind of thing, is it's just smart for consumers. I mean, uh, put it this way, buying a head of romaine and washing it with 
you know, running water is better than not washing it at all. Yes. Certainly using a, certainly using a product that, you know, will get rid of 99.9% of, of, you know, potential pathogens is even better. The, the idea here is to knock, you know, our human bodies can fight these bugs if the infectious dose is low enough. Uh, but you got to understand that, you know, 50 bacterium of E. coli is enough to make you sick and 100,000 of them f could fit on the head of a pin. Wow. You know, this it, is not, you know, A, you need to try to, to do the best you can to avoid it, you know, at the farm level, but that's not going to be perfect. Um, you know, I, I think that, in my view, convenience isn't worth the risk. And if you can control your own environment in your home and, you know, wash it using, you know, whatever means you feel comfortable using, you know, I, I think that's the way it has to be done. That's a better option. Um, I, so how do you feel about, like, will you eat sushi or raw, like, oysters and things like that? <laughs> well, as a guy from the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> um, you know, I grew up on raw oysters. Um, that's probably not something that's on my to-do list when I go out. Um, and it's primarily, again, because things are different today than when I was a 20-something year old. Um, the waters are warmer, norovirus is more prevalent, uh, you know, there's a, the population is, you know, has grown areas that used to be completely always, you know, uh, pathogen-free, you know, you're seeing them happening more and more. So, you know, I know foodies love raw oysters. My wife will eat raw oysters, but I'll just sort of like, you know. Do you ever just go, no, honey, don't do yeah. it. It's, it's, you can only do so much. So, and after 31 years of marriage, almost 32, I, I sort of know when to pick my battles. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, and you know, uh, sushi, uh, you're less, it's not impossible, but you know, it is, it is a product that is less likely to be contaminated with bacteria if you're you know, buying like fresh sushi, like, you know, fresh off, you know, fresh out of the water. I yeah. mean, absolutely. But, you know, um, I've certainly had salmonella outbreaks linked to, uh, you know, quote unquote sushi that you buy in grocery stores, um, you know, sushi rolls kind of thing. And, or, you know, at 7-Elevens kind of thing. And <laughs> That's probably not the place you want to buy sushi. No, I, I think, I think word, word of caution for everybody here listening, you know, if you're going to have something that is raw, there, you know, the, the higher the risk, the more important it is that the place you're eating at is credible. Um, do your homework. I always say, if you can't see sushi being made in front of you, you probably don't want to order it. I would um, I, because there's also the risk of it being cross-contaminated with a raw protein that can, or you know, uh, even raw produce that can make you sick too. So, and if it's warm, don't touch it. <laughs> exactly. 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 So, um, Bill, where can people find out more about you? Oh, um, I'm not that hard to find on the internet nowadays. Um, um, I have. A I love your tweets, by the way. I'm always, I'm always checking out what you're doing on Twitter. 
I've lost many of followers lately on some of my political tweets. I should probably shut up on that, but I can't help. <laughs> um, the, um, um, I have a blog, marlerblog.com, where I pontificate about things. Uh, I just actually did a post um, uh, regarding um, the, uh, some updated numbers on the romaine lettuce outbreak from 2018. The CDC had said there were only 210 people sick, which is a lot, but the actual numbers is 240. And they also put an interesting statistic in there that for what every one person counted, they estimate that 26 others were sickened. So wow. do the math, 240. So it's, so it's like double the number, basically. Well, no, like 26 times the number. Oh, 26 times more. Yeah. Holy smokes. So yeah, yeah. So, so they, um, you know, and that runs the gamut between you know, mostly people who were not that sick or not sick enough to see the doctor, but it's still, you know, those numbers are staggering. Is there, um, for people who have gone through foodborne illness or have a, a, a loved one, a family member that has, is there um, an organization or somewhere that they can seek support? Yeah, there's a, um, there's a group that was actually started, you know, sort of like, the moms against E. coli um, after the Jack in the Box outbreak. It's called Stop S T O P Safe Tables Our Priority. It's called, I think it's they also called Stop Foodborne Illness. Um, they're a good group. Um, they um, you know they they're there to support. They also work on legislation and you know and advocacy. So that's a good group that people can reach out to. Yeah, we'll link to them too. We, we follow them and, and support them and what they're doing. Okay, to wrap it up, and thank you so much for being such a wonderful font of knowledge. I have to ask you one last question. Sure. If you could have one meal, your favorite meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> that one meal that just makes you go, ah. Um. Somebody asked me one time, you know, what's completely safe to eat? And I off the cuff said, uh, scotch and pizza. <laughs> so, um, although I've, I've been on a, I've been on a, uh, I've been on a, um, a health food kick in the last um, year. Um, I've been, I walk uh, between seven and eight miles every day. And, and uh, wow, that's great. I've been eating well because I, I, my wife wants me to live uh, a long and healthy life. So, um, yeah, I think uh, pepperoni pizza and a good bottle of scotch or at least a good glass of scotch would be probably my, my thing that I would order if that was my last meal. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting. I appreciate all your wisdom and inputs and Everybody can follow you um, and find out more. We'll link to your blog in the show notes so they can read up on your rants that are so entertaining. And I love, I love reading your blog. So thank Thanks. you for your honesty. All right. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I know you have a lot of choices out there of what to listen to, what to watch. So it means a lot to me that you're here with me. And hey, if you love this content, would you hit the subscribe button? 
I want you around. I don't want you to just show up for one episode and leave. I want you here, part of the conversation, a seat at this table. And while you're at it, would you share this with your friends and family? And if you take a screenshot and share it on your social media with a hashtag RFYBL for recipes for your best life, I'll make sure to personally give you a shout out and you may just be featured right here on the show. So until next time, here's to living deliciously and being the chef of your best life.